Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hello, I'm Jay. I'm editor of the Eagles Beak, a Palace fan site by fans for fans. You can get us on Twitter at the Eagles Beak, and obviously our website is eaglesbeak.com. I'm also a producer and co-host of a local community radio sports show called the Meridian Sports Show. And get us on Twitter for that at the Meridian SS. Hi, I'm Richard. I'm a Manchester City fan, uh, and I podcast on the Blue Moon podcast, a Manchester City podcast released every Friday, and is on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast, and I write uh, one article per week for Yahoo Sports about Manchester City. All right, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, as always, we start with news and notes this season, um, and the, the most obvious thing, the biggest talking point of the week easily, was what seemed to be this kind of unraveling of Jose Mourinho, at least that's how it's heavily been reported. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but this week, things he's done, uh, brought up United's recent league and European failures. That's how he framed them. That's not me uh, making a narrative out of it. He uh, praised Manchester City for having better football heritage. He attacked journalists that were in the room, and he called his players out, saying they were, quote, scared to play, that they didn't play as he prepared them to play, and I blame everybody, which is about as succinct a thing as somebody can say about their own players. Do we think that this is him unraveling, or are these just more Mourinho antics? Well, before Richard has an absolute field day with United, <laughs> I, 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 I'll make a few comments to start with. Um, it, it's just typical Mourinho, isn't it? I, I think it's a little bit different to what's happened before. Um, a little bit harsh calling players or, or throwing players under the bus like he has done. I think I think it works for some players, but doesn't for others. I think some some players are you know need to be handled a little differently while other players will thrive on the criticism and uh, finger pointing that he's uh, he's made. But um, yeah, was it 12 minutes of ranting uh, and calling out yeah, the reporters? Match, yeah. And I mean, it's a little bit unprofessional, but we kind of we kind of used to it, at Mourinho, aren't we? I mean, how long has he been in the you know in English football? It's been it's been a fair while. Um, I mean, I think it would be uh, if if we if we stop managers or, or penalise managers from doing this kind of thing, it takes a little bit of fun out of the game, doesn't it? Really, um, if we're if we're trying to make people all the same, so it does give um, you know other fans. Um, you know, something to laugh about and, uh, and and something to enjoy. Obviously, as a United fan, it probably wouldn't be quite as much fun seeing him manage to do this in what's been, you know, particularly tough week, losing to Seville, which 
probably shouldn't have done really. They they, they should have got through against uh, not underestimating a Seville side, but they clearly weren't good enough. They weren't prepared enough, um, and maybe underestimated the opposition a little bit. So, uh, understand some of the comments that Mourinho's made both immediately after that game and uh, and and afterwards. But um, yeah, obviously there's you know perhaps the stress of the the failure of it this this season. They haven't uh, you know obviously United are a side that you know the fans are used to winning things and that hasn't been the case for the last X amount of years and not having their own way, you know, is it, is, you know, is there a kind of, yeah, is he trying to deflect the criticism so he isn't getting so much and fans aren't thinking that, oh, he's not the one for them anymore. And I know that quite a few United fans are saying, uh, saying similar things that maybe, maybe they do need a change for, from that. But um, they have made slight progress this year. I mean, they, they weren't in Champions League last year. Um, they look like they're going to, well, potentially finish second in the table this year, but uh, could get silver in the FA Cup. But I, I think as perhaps uh, one or two teams that might challenge them for that um, going forward. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a typical Mourinho. It's probably more so than it has been in the past, but um, I'll hand over to Richard to let him have a go. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> so before I get into just having a go, right, I think, the thing where I think Mourinho is fair enough and what he has absolutely every right to do, he has every right to publicly defend his record at United because they were the, the severe result is a terrible one for them. His approach to the game is an odd one um, to that match in the way that he played, starting Fellaini, who hadn't started a game since was it November, all that stuff, playing quite a, a bland style of football against a team that United could have and should have beaten is really odd. But that's a one-off game that they've lost. And they don't, in his time there, the only home games that he's lost have been to City. So it is very out of character and one-offs happen. So he has every right to go and defend his record and say, look, this is the club that I took over. This is where they were. I won two trophies last season. And now we've gone from being six, where, as we all know, they broke records for how long they languished in that position last year. And now, actually, they're having a, a very respectable season where they're probably going to finish second. And they're, they're certainly going to qualify for the Champions League. And would have so been he's made... contenders in a normal year. Yeah, so that's a, yeah. a really a really big improvement and he's every right to do that aside from you know the, the quality of football or the, the style of football is a separate argument but just in results he has every right to go and defend his record and I'd never sort of take that away from him where it gets weird is the the calling out of players which typically and historically once Mourinho starts doing that that is usually um, the sign that he's not going to get things back. Um, it's usually a sign that he's, he's lost the dressing room. It happened at Chelsea um, and he just absolutely couldn't recover it. I don't think that's the case at United this season. Um, it seems, I think we're given to understand that he retains the full support of Ed Woodward there, which means he's, he's not going to be losing his job anytime soon unless he chooses to. Um, his, his power play with Pogba has been a bit weird, but again, typically Mourinho. Where... I think he's really, really odd and where I think he does himself no favours is that rather than defending his record and painting himself in a positive light, he, ha he can't help but make himself the sort of the centre of attention in a negative way. He feeds mm. off it. And so what he's done, and it's not the first time he's done it, but nobody's asking the question about why they're so far off City. Nobody's asking that. Nobody's asking it about Chelsea. Nobody's asking it about Spurs. And nobody's asking it about Liverpool or Arsenal. They each have their own issues that they might get questioned about. But nobody's being criticised for being so far off a team that 
you can't you can't win the league against a team that wins almost every game it plays. So that isn't a criticism of anybody. So why he Mourinho feels the need to bring City into that conversation about the squad that Guardiola inherited is to me just plain weird. And instead of allowing him to defend his record, he's highlighting an issue that nobody's criticising him for. Nobody's saying that he should be closer to City at this point. If in two or three years he's not bridged that gap, if he's there that long, then okay, that's historically that's he won't be. Yeah, true enough. But nobody's asking that question, so I, I don't get why. I mean, I'm not trying to make this, you know, trying to bring City into this narrative sort of for no reason, but it just jumps out at me as the weirdest part of what he's doing. He did it, it back in November, Decemberish, when it was clear that City were barring sort of an absolute disaster, going to run away with the league. And he started when nobody was nobody was asking. He started bringing up how much we spend on fullbacks, and it just seems why highlight that? Why when you could be saying what a good job you're actually doing and defend yourself in that way? Why point out that you're a million miles off the title when that's to be expected? While bragging team... about your record. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, this um, the one that's obviously gone down very well with City fans is him talking about the football heritage. Um, I never thought I'd see the day when a, a Manchester United manager said City had a better heritage, which um, <laughs> really in recent years not been true. Um, and yeah, very just just odd. It's just a I find it a really weird thing to do. And I, I mean, a twelve minute run. I I don't think I've ever seen him like that before. And then later that day. After half ten, the embargoed bit came out. That was like an extra three minutes where he started saying, "We have ideologists and idiots, and they're the same thing, and they can talk about my style." And what was his other one? So when I was when I was twenty, I was just somebody's son. I wasn't in football, and it's like there was no thread to it. There was no real connection to anything he was saying. And I don't know. I, th I think for me the like being objective about it there's something really sad about it because Mourinho has been a wonderful manager a very very good manager and um one of you know arguably the top manager of his generation until Guardiola came along and his achievements speak for themselves his trophy records speak for themselves and it was clear that United was always his dream job and he should be happy he should be in that job and he should look happy. He should have that sort of that charisma back that he used to have. And instead, he just looks jaded every day. I mean, how often do you see him smile during a mm. press conference? And I just, I think for football, that's quite a sad thing. I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd sort of always have my, um, you know, with my sort of city support ahead on, I would still always have my bias against him and, and not particularly wanting to succeed. But just from being objective, a manager who, Love him or hate him, he was entertaining, um, and and that sort of charm that he used to have, there was um there was something very engaging about it. And there was usually like uh, a smirk that accompanied these comments. Yeah, it was always very knowing. He knew what he was doing, whereas now he just genuinely does seem embittered. And I don't know, like you work so hard to get what is clearly clearly his dream job. It was always what he wanted. Um, and you know that follows up having won the Premier League a few times with Chelsea and having done something amazing in Italy and then having managed Real Madrid the guys had all the big you know a lot of the big jobs and yet he's he gets to the the biggest one and he just doesn't look happy and I think that's a shame mm. uh, I think one of the the most interesting things kind of like you were pointing out with with the fact that it used to kind of be like a knowing and like it used to kind of seem um like a tactic of his 
the, mm. the only thing that keeps me from entirely dismissing that with this particular 12-minute rant is, first of all, for a rant, it was very calm tonally. Like, he, he wasn't shouting any of this. He was just reading off statistics. And the other thing was that he was prepared with those statistics. He went into that press conference specifically to do this. It's and, very Rafa Benitez, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very Rafa rant-like. Yeah, it, it was it was certainly very strange. Um, Richard, you mentioned um, that he saw the backing of the chairman there, um, but we also know, as I kind of rudely interrupted you to say, uh, that he tends to only be at clubs about three years. How much longer do we think he'll be at Manchester United? I don't think he'd get... Um, I think if they were to not win anything next season, and of course they might yet win the FA Cup this season, um, but if they were to have a trophy list this year and next uh, a trophy list year next year as well, um, he would probably revert to type, and uh, I think we would start to see some very um, not veiled or thinly veiled digs at the at the board, and um, it talk. You know, he'd be talking about transfers and all that stuff that he usually does. He'll be digging out his players even more, and that would quite possibly leave lead to him leaving, um, maybe to maybe to PSG. As he as he sort of made reference to in his uh in his rant that he could be in a club with the he could be in a, a league with the title in his pocket before the season yeah. even started, maybe that's the move that he's got left unless he goes to uh, into international football. I don't know, um, but of course if next year he has his absolute dream year and wins the league and makes real progress in the Champions League, then maybe with United being sort of the job that he always aimed for. Maybe that would be enough to keep him there a bit longer than normal, but it's hard to see at this stage in his career that he's really going to deviate from the norm. So I I would expect him to stay this summer. Um, I, I, I can't see that really changing. But next season, uh, it could well be his last because that, that, you know, it's impossible to avoid the fact that that is what happens with him. Yeah, I think Richard's timeline sounds about right. Um if he lasts beyond next season, I would be surprised almost regardless of results. Although, like you said, the fact that this has been his dream job for years could kind of change that formula a little bit. But um, the the tactics that he uses makes anything but success untenable. Because if you're not winning, you don't want to go see your team play some of the stagnant football they do. If uh, your manager is losing his mind at the press every week um, and not winning, it takes it from being... Um, somewhat knowing, as we keep saying, or, or wise, and just makes it look foolish and, and an embarrassment. So it, it, these things work when he's winning, and as soon as they don't, <laughs> I've already seen United fans saying they'd rather not have him as their manager, that he doesn't respect the club, um, or, you know, I'm not calling him a clown, but it's certainly been said on uh, Twitter as well that he's kind of making a mockery of <laughs> the office, which is a pretty funny thing to say as an American, but we're not going to get into that. Um <laughs> All right, uh, next we're going to move into uh, talking about Mohamed Salah. He had a four-goal effort against Watford yesterday. They are not a tremendous defense, to be fair, but it was still a ridiculous match from him. One of the goals, he basically beat five Watford players all on his own. Um, Seems likely to be headed for a uh, Player of the Year trophy, which is about a month from today as we record. Uh, But do we think he is currently the best player in the Premier League? Yeah, I think so. I I think on form particularly and he's such a joy to watch um you know Liverpool have been quite reliant on his play and obviously his you know his shot for 
to Liverpool, and it, it looks very much like it's going to top the scoring charts in the Premier League this year. With I think is it, will it be a record number? I think it's thirty-one. The the, the previous top scorer in the Premier oh, League yeah, record, he beat I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's what Suarez. Yeah. So with this four goal salvo uh, this weekend, and obviously with seven more games left to play, is there's no doubt that um, he's going to you know, continue like he is, and he's going he's going to break that record. So with Harry Kane now injured as well, um, but I think he's his nearest challenger. Um, it's pretty impressive for. Uh, you know, player, um, but yeah, it's it's been it's a joy to watch. I think um, you know, I, I captained him in my fantasy league this weekend, so I'm very happy indeed with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I I just hope they rest him against Palace uh, in a couple of weeks. To be honest, um, ahead of that game against City in the Champions League, that's probably what we're hoping. But uh, not kidding, I, I I enjoy watching the best players playing against my team. So you know, it'd be great to see him playing at Salas Park and, and doing his stuff as long as he doesn't score or um, you know encourage a win against us. Then great. But I I think it's. On their day, there's certainly players that will be up there with him. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne from City, for sure, is one of the players that uh, is another player that's uh, outstanding. And but I think um, Salah's been so consistent this season throughout, um, and, and just you know, almost carry Liverpool to the position they are at the moment, really. And, and I, I can't see them getting too much close to where they are now with without him. And obviously, his goals as well. And it's it, it says an awful lot that you know he was at Chelsea. Um, earlier in his career, and uh, obviously went to Roma and has come back to Premier League, and a, a completely different player, pretty much. Um, and, and that's not the first time it's happened to Chelsea, of course. But yeah, great player, really good. Looking forward to seeing him in the World Cup tomorrow. He's playing for Egypt, so that'd be good. Yeah, I mean, he's he is wonderful, isn't he? Is um, I, I think Jay said right at the start that he's certainly the, the form player in the league, and I think. Mm. That's um, you know, I mean, that's unquestionable, really, isn't it? I think so. Whether he's the best player in the Premier League is a little bit less cut and dry because, I mean, this is again, I've got to try really hard to be objective here. But whether I would say he's better than De Bruyne or he's better than David Silva, I don't know. Um, and you know the, the other examples of, of players in the league, but um, those closest to home for me, I, I'm, I'm not sure he's better than those players. And I guess it comes down to being the best attacker and the leading goal scorer in a team whose strengths are clearly, um, you know, sort of in the attacking area. Um, is the best of a lot of them, and. Without him, maybe Liverpool would be considerably worse off. Um, you know, he, he's, I don't want to say he carries them because obviously it's a very good team, but he is by far their leading light. Or do you prefer a player who is probably the driving force behind the team that's running away with the league, which to me would be De Bruyne, um, but maybe doesn't quite across the season stand out above his teammates in the, sa- the same way? Because there's, they're all sort of on form um, and all have been all season. Um, or to me, it's like David Silva, who seems to go through uh, phases in terms of the recognition that he gets. Like I think we're at a point now where anybody who knows sort of anything about football at all or about the Premier League knows that David Silva's a wonderful footballer. And sort of there's always a, a passing acknowledgement that he's one of the best players to have ever played in the Premier League. But sort of week by week, if you ask people the best players in the league, he probably doesn't top many people's lists because he's just, I don't know if it's because he sets standards so high that 
because he always maintains them, it's easy to sort of not talk about him or maybe his style of play goes a little bit under the radar. Um, is Salah the best in the league? Is I think it comes down to preference in what you like watching mm. or where you place value. Being the best player in a team that is good but maybe not quite great yet or being the driving force in a team that is probably as good, well, he's going to be remembered as probably the best Premier League champions. Um I don't know, but he's he's in the conversation, and I think in a sport that is, uh, you know, the, the the whole point of it is that it's a team game. If you can be in the conversation about whether you're the best individual in the league or put yourself amongst the best individuals in the world, then I think being part of that conversation is probably the the mark of your quality. Anyway, you probably don't have to have a definitive answer, do you? Mm. Yeah, and you can get into some. Uh, confusing and frustrating conversations about should player of the year be the best individual player, the best player in the best team, the best team player. Like, There's a lot of yeah. nuance it's in there. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly yeah. is. Um, but uh, to your point, um, De Bruyne, obviously way better in the creative categories um, where he's by far first in chances created. Um, and he's also uh, second in accurate crosses behind only Pascal Gross. Random shout out to him. Salah, um, yeah obviously leading in uh, total goals, which is goals and assists. Uh, only ahead of Aguero, by the way, who I think people are not realizing is having the kind of year he's having, just because mm. it seems as though he's maybe lost a little bit of that top-end pace. But he's always been a wily forward, so I don't know why people think that inherently means uh, that he'll just drop off a cliff uh, Torres-esque style. Um, but for me, I think Salah is probably the player of the year, as to whether or not he's the best player long term, I don't know. I, I I like the the height of the floor on Kevin De Bruyne. Like the a bad Kevin De Bruyne year is already better than a bad Mohamed Salah year. Although a bad year for both of them gets him kicked out of Chelsea. But that's a different conversation for a different day. But um, I think De Bruyne is more consistently very good. But Salah's best day can be higher, but his worst day can be lower. Is that an answer? I don't know. We're going to take a quick break, let you decide, and then we'll be back with questions for each of our guests. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, and we are back. We'll lead in here with you, Jay. Uh, we don't really do match reviews to start the show like we used to do, um, but I feel like it's important uh, to get into your match yesterday. Um, how uh, important was it to pick up all the points yesterday and get you out of the relegation zone, at least for now? Massively important, really was. We've had a run of games. That was our first win in eight. 
not to say that we, you know, we should have probably got points uh, along that run of games because our performances hadn't been too bad at all. And it, it's just come out the other side of a three-game stint against three of the teams in the top six. But uh, regardless, we we travelled Huddersfield, and it's it's one of those cliched six pointers, wasn't it? Before we, you know, before the uh, game started, and um, to be honest, it, it was a game that uh, we had players coming back from injury. We, as you know, Kev, we've suffered an awful lot of injury this season. I think at one point we had 13 players out. Yeah, on the, it was right uh, before our match. List. You yeah, were without it was. everyone. Uh, it was crazy. It, it really, it, and and it's not. You know, we had a very similar uh, injury um, injury list a couple of years ago with Pardew in charge. But a lot of those were kind of muscular injuries. A lot of the injuries we've had this season are impact injuries in terms of knee injuries, ankle injuries, broken ankles, and it's it, it's injuries that you know you're not seeing players coming back from too quickly. So it's great to have Wilf back in the side yesterday. And obviously, anybody that watches Palace and seeing Wilf Zaha playing knows that he is. Um, pretty much our, our our main outlet. He's the trickiest character we've got. A, a, an excellent player when he's on form, and uh, he really is hitting the heights of, of what he can, uh, 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 what he's capable of this season. And, uh, and you know, we miss him when he doesn't play. Uh, added to that, Mamadou Sakho was back in the side as well, and we're getting a few players. Johan Kabai came off the bench, and those players really do make a difference to a team like Palace. They really do. They're quality players, um, and it showed yesterday. We we were at Huddersfield from the outset. Huddersfield were disappointed. But, you know, from our perspective, that was a good thing because perhaps the way we played the game and the way that we took the game to Huddersfield really put them on the back foot um, throughout the game. Um, again, once again, they did target Wilf Zaha um, as a player to uh, um, yeah, to try and keep quiet and uh, didn't really work, to be honest, and uh, created space for other players in the side to, uh, you know, to take advantage of those, uh, you know, of those areas. And very happy with the three points or much needed three points. And we go into a run of the last seven games of the season. We've only got to play Liverpool next. And the six games uh, after that are against, I think three of them are against sides in the, in the bottom uh, seven or eight in the, in the Premier League. So again, a few more six pointers to come, but um, that will give us a huge amount of confidence. If we carry on playing like that, as we did against the likes of United and Spurs, we'll, we should be fine. Yeah, um, in some of my writings this week, I kept mentioning the importance of Zaha to Crystal Palace. Fun fact, they've lost every game that Zaha has not played this season, and they average 1.14 goals per game when he plays and 0.33 when he doesn't. Um, Pretty, pretty stark stuff. Um, On the other side, you have Christian Benteke, who, while he's been staying relevant in some sense and that he's uh, weirdly racked up a lot of assists of late, uh, just by the eye test, looks nothing like the player he looked at Aston Villa or when he wore a Belgian shirt and we thought he was going to be, you know, at the level of, of say, Lukaku, who has certainly surpassed him at this point. Um, do you agree that he's been struggling for Palace? And if so, uh, do you think you'll be able to turn him around or is Sorloth the in-house replacement already? He has. Uh, he has looked a former shadow, well, a shadow of his former self. Um, not the same player that scored 17 goals for us last season. He's only scored, I think, two this season in the Premier League, which... Uh, which is a ridiculous return for a player who, who who clearly has the ability, but just really isn't fancy himself to get on the end of uh, of you know of any goals at this season. Really, um, I, I, you can point the finger at Palace not using him to his to his potential. I mean, there's a few examples in recent games where we've we've overhit balls or uh, to him and not put the ball in his head because you know that's what he does. If you put a ball in his head, more often than not, he's going to put it in the back of the net. So service particularly hasn't been great to him. Um, you know, he's he's 
he's worked hard. His his work rate's very good. It has been in recent games. He's he's one of those players that tends to encourage criticism from fans an awful lot because he doesn't score the goals. Uh, well, he hasn't scored the goals this season. But his work ethic is is normally very good. Um, it was yesterday. He he um, he played his part in the win. Um, should have had a penalty in the game. Um, worked hard as as a lone striker up front with you know Townsend and Wilf working off him. Um, but we just need to give him that. You know, give him those final balls into the box where you can just get onto the, onto them and, and head them into the back of net, which is which is a strong shoot. I think we're we're weak in that area in terms of playing to the best of his ability. Um, I think one thing that might play into our favour is him being dropped from the Belgian squad uh, this week, which is the latest news. Um, so he's going to want to score goals. He's going to want to perform to the best of his ability between now and the end of the season to get back into that squad for the World Cup in the summer. Um, so if there's any incentive that he needed, then surely that's got to be it. And uh, if, if that does work for him, then of course it will work for us. But, you know, we like I say, we've got seven games. We're playing this former side uh, next up and then we've got games against sides in and around us. So we do need him on the score sheet. And uh, uh, but to be honest, if, if, I, if he's creating opportunities for other players, in and around the side, like uh, which is what happened yesterday. Then, then if we're getting goals elsewhere, then I, I don't really mind. But it'd be nice to get uh, some of the fans off his back and see him scoring goals again because that's what he's there for, really. Uh, it's just unfortunate yesterday. I think there was a question mark as to whether Benteke would start the game yesterday. I think Hodgson was favouring uh, Alexander Soloff to start, but he picked up a hamstring injury uh, in in the week, which is just a typical Palace thing. You know, he's new to the club and he's picked up an injury. It's, it's what they do. Um, which is unfortunate for him, of course, but he didn't uh, he didn't make it onto the bench. Um, so Benteke, a good shift yesterday, but yeah, he, he's not been he's not been a player that we saw from him last season. But um, I think there's two schools of thought there, in that we're not using him to the best of his ability, and he's not really getting himself into those positions because of a real lack of confidence. Yeah, you mentioned um, the likelihood of him uh, traveling to Russia with the Belgian side. It, it's getting harder and harder by the day with every second the Mishibachuai uh, mm. plays for Dortmund and scores like every time out. Um, which I'm sure Conte didn't need at Chelsea at all. Um, all right, coming to you now, Richard. I'm just taking pot shots at a lot of people today. I don't know what that's all about. Um, Richard, uh, you mentioned earlier, even in the Mourinho rant, that City have basically already sewn the league up this season. But you do have players with injury histories. Uh, Company and uh, Gundogan, obviously, both long medical issues. And then Mendy just coming back from injury to training. Aguero currently has a knock. How do you think Pep Guardiola will deal with these injuries throughout the rest of the season, considering in the Champions League, which probably matters a lot, but the Premier League, where it seems that you've already uh, done your work? Um, that's a good question. I think he's got. Um, it's going to be difficult for Pep to know exactly what to do, because obviously the Champions League, in terms of importance, of trying to win a trophy, the Champions League is now where it's at because the league, whenever it comes, hopefully it's in the Manchester Derby in a few weeks, but whenever it comes, really, winning it is an inevitability. So the risk for Guardiola now is winning it so far in advance that the players take the foot off the gas and lose the momentum in the Champions League. That is um, it's something that he experienced at Bayern. And in the, I might have mentioned this book before, uh, but in Pep Confidential, the book that was written about his first year at Bayern Munich, um, he was quite open with the author that he allowed the team to take the foot off the gas. And then they went and got spanked. Was it his, his first year when they got um, absolutely battered by Real Madrid in the semi-final uh, of the Champions it may have League? Been. 
Um, it was Real or Barca. I know both happened. I think Real was the first year. Um, and he was quite open that he he willfully let them take the foot off the gas to save them for the Champions League, which in hindsight is like the most unguardiola thing ever to, to lose that intensity so deliberately. Um, and it ended up damaging them. And so he's got to try not to do that at City. And it's going to be very hard to manage the squad and not lose some momentum, I think, because you can make changes, but I don't think you can make them wholesale because we saw it in the, the second leg against Basel. We made six changes and we're much, much worse for it. And it's not that because, you know, people will, um, you know, nobody's going to about squad depth but any team that you take six players out of is bound to lose something because you're putting players together that although they all know their jobs and they all know the system and the patterns of play and all that stuff they still don't play together regularly enough to on a match day have that absolute sort of top level fluidity so realistically we're probably looking at being able to get away with two or three changes per game and maintaining that momentum and I think the the bigger risk for Guardiola is not in managing the squad, but actually in motiv- you know, keeping the players motivated. And that has to come from all the records that we've got the opportunity to break. We've got a, a chance at a points record, a points at a goals record, and a, um, sort of hand-in-hand hand with a points record. We've got a chance at having the biggest ever margin from first to second in the Premier League. And we've also got the chance to be the first club in uh, in the Premier League era to win the league with a higher goal difference than anybody else has points, which would be quite a fun one to have. Um, so the injuries, if he wants to rest, say, Fernandinho, who is so important to us, if he wants to rest him for a Champions uh, to, to save him for the Champions League, then he's going to have to play Gundogan. Um, if he wants to rest Otamendi, who plays all the time because he's our best defender now, then, OK, he could play Stones and Laporte, but he's probably going to have to play company at some point. And if he doesn't play them anyway, if he doesn't play company and just saves him for the Champions League, then is he going to be match fit for the Champions League? It's possibly, if you start leaving them out, you possibly have the, re- re- the reverse effect where they're not on top note when those big games start rolling around. Um so, to answer your question, Kev, I don't know. I don't know quite how he manages that. Um, I think it's it's a really, really tricky one. Um, I suppose Mendy's the probably the easiest one because his is a simple case of you simply can't rush him back after a, a full season out. He's played five games for us, uh, and so it's going to have to come as I think loading him back in and giving him twenty, thirty minutes here and there. And then starting him and letting him play for an hour because he's just absolutely not going to be match fit. Uh, but company and Gundawana, um, they look all right at the moment, but you never know what might be around the corner for them. Company in particular, um, yeah, he, he, I suppose he won't play all the games and he'll, he'll be rested for some. But the form that he's been in since the cup final is back to being one of the you know sort of absolutely perfect for us. So. Hmm. Don't want him to lose the momentum. Don't want him to get injured. So it's a, I can't answer the question. Best to do it. It's a, it's such a hard balancing act. Yeah, then it'll be certainly interesting to see how he does do it. Um, and it sounds like he himself may be having to try something new, <laughs> having uh, kind of failed in the previous situation. Um, kind of sticking with uh, company. Obviously, at Tottenham, we had a player that was club captain, absolute legend at centre back, uh, could not train at all in Ludley King. Um, and for basically until his very last year, he was still our best center back. 
um, as long as he was on the pitch. Just curious to hear with Odomendi developing as well as he has under Guardiola. Obviously, you have two youngsters in Stones and you just brought in Laporte or Laporte. I'm still not sure. Um, where do you rank company amongst your center backs right now? Uh, if you'd have asked me this before the League Cup final, then I would have unequivocally said fourth. Just if, even if on injuries alone, I would have said he's our backup option now um, because he, he's not reliable to be on the pitch. And I thought uh, shortly before that game when we played Burnley away and we drew one all, I thought he looked pretty uncomfortable in sort of. He wasn't terrible, but he just wasn't company. You know, he wasn't the company that we know. He, just, he was fairly uncomfortable on the ball, fairly uncomfortable um, in, in reading the game. But then come the cup final, he was absolutely immaculate. And that was sort of, it was his day, really. Um, and he's been, he was then great. Did he play? I don't want to misremember this. I can't remember. I, th- I think he played the Arsenal League game a few days later as well. Um, but he's been, basically, he's been in really, really good form. And so if you could... If you could have this question without the caveat of can he stay fit, then he would still be our best defender. But unfortunately, it's impossible to have that. Um, you know, he will get injured again. It's just it is the nature of companies. Body lets him down time and time again, and it's tragic because he probably would have had a period as the best defender in the world if he hadn't been robbed of his best years. Um, and his, his sort of psychological makeup to keep fighting and keep coming back time and time again after 43 injuries is uh, it speaks a lot about the guy. Um, but you know it'll happen to him again. It could be the season, it could be the next game. And with that in mind, that it seems to take him these days a few games to get back into it in a way that it didn't before. It does take him a few games to, to really get back to his absolute best. <sighs> He's certainly behind Otamendi as our best. I think Otamendi's established himself as that now, um, just for consistency. Um, whether he's yet behind Stones or Laporte, he's probably our second best on, on any given day. But going forward, he's probably slipping to fourth in our in our overall ranks. It's a very unclear answer again, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> no, I, I, think I think what you're trying to say is that the um, regression of company will pretty much happen coinciding with the development of both stones and uh laporte like it'll pretty much simultaneously happen that they get better while he gets worse just due to age that's a lovely way to put it can we pretend that that's what i said absolutely (laughs) oh if you thought that was me speaking it was just richard doing an american accent and he (laughs) nailed it Um, do either of you have any questions about tottenham at the moment I do, but it's a it's a really obvious and boring question at the moment, and okay. it's not about the league. But just with obviously Tottenham having made it to the FA Cup semi final this weekend, where you will play United, who you have already beaten at Wembley once this season. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's your thoughts on this whole playing an FA Cup semi final? What is this season? Uh, what is Tottenham's home ground? Do you think that's right? Do you think it gives them an advantage? Do you think it should be allowed? Or you know. And any other mm. similar questions around that? Yeah, well, um, United fans already um, pointing out some stuff about how uh, when United uh, or when Old Trafford was used as one of the semifinal venues, they they had to play at Villa Park. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, that's <laughs> it. Unless there's going to be some late breaking news uh, out of the FA, certainly doesn't seem to be the case. It does seem like we'll be playing at Wembley. Also, there's this new weird micro social media controversy surrounding it uh and that we are in the away end and so some people took early joy um in tottenham being in the visiting dressing room but tottenham already are in the visiting dressing room 
and have left the home <laughs> dressing room for England's use. Um, so we're actually, even though we're the quote-unquote away team, we'll be playing at our quote-unquote home stadium and in our usual dressing room, which is technically not the home dressing room. Um, so a whole lot of weird nonsense going in uh, around here. Uh, whether or not it's fair, I think is debatable. I, <laughs> narratively, we have been accused of both being awful at Wembley and it being an unfair advantage that we get to play there. So it's a little pick your pick your narrative on that side. I, I don't like that the semifinals are played at Wembley to begin with. Um, it's just like an extra little added thing to this. Um, but when we rented out Wembley, uh, Jay and I were talking a little bit about the show. The FA should have had something either pre-posted about this or a decision should have already been made um, knowing that this was a possibility. And it sure seems like it just happened and they haven't said anything about it. They're just like, I, well, I guess it's happening. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I guess. I guess so. I guess pretty much the the second best team over the last three years or the best, I think, if you actually look at league position because the, the other teams have moved up and down so much. Um, yeah, it's possible they're going to get to a semifinal or a final this year. What are you going to do about that? Nah, don't worry about it. It'll probably be fine. Um, I understand why other fans might be frustrated by this. Um, again, uh, you have to decide if we're suffering from Wembley hoodoo or have an advantage. You, you don't get to have both of those narratives and your cake and the cherry on top as well to mix three different metaphors. Um, so yeah, I, I personally... Even if Tottenham wasn't there, wish that semifinals weren't played at Wembley. Now that it is, you get fun things like the Tottenham fans unironically singing Spurs are on their way to Wembley as we were coasting <laughs> to our win against Swansea, uh, which is accurate, but also pretty silly. Um, but yeah, I, I totally understand why other people wouldn't like it. I personally don't like it for a larger reason and that I don't think that's where the semifinals should be played to begin with. Um, but also... Uh, I do think it'll be somewhat of an advantage for us, Justin, that we're familiar with the facility. But also, uh, we don't get the entire ticket allocation. So while we are playing there, um, they'll obviously have their half of fans. Uh, and also, also, this isn't actually our stadium. Um, we have not played a home match all season, as Dave Hendricks so kindly keeps mentioning. Uh, we'll get to do that next year, but obviously that'll be the betting in year. So uh, we have been we have developed a much better record at Wembley lately. Um but I don't think it's the outright advantage people are saying. I don't think it's the outright disadvantage is when people were saying that we couldn't win at Wembley. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's kind of a non-story. But I totally understand why specifically Manchester United fans and neutrals as a whole think it's at least worth poking fun at. And I think a lot of this is kind of Twitter news where this is going to get a lot of like traction of just people making like a quick two-sentence jab one way or the other. Um, but I think largely it's pretty inconsequential. That yeah, is actually how I intend to use it, just so you know. <laughs> and you have every right to do so. Um, all right, then we're going to head into Player Watch, where kind of tying in with Mourinho's trashing of his players, he continues to not be able to make it out of a press conference without talking about Luke Shaw. Like, two of the times it's been positive, and the rest of them have pretty exclusively been negative. Uh, reports that as many as five different current United players could be out um, in the summer, and then you get to take your pick there. People on Twitter, again name dropping for them today um have certainly done so taking their jab at, at which four or five players might be on their way out there are there any players at your club that you think uh have been forced out due to a falling out with the manager even if they were playing well or conversely players that have stayed in your team too long because they got along with the manager oh that's a good question um well nobody falls out of Roy Hodgson do they really 
never seen it. And nobody's taking jabs at him on Twitter either. (laughs) No, he's such a gent, isn't he? And the way he, um, you know, speaks and the way he just is in general about what he does. I mean, he had an awful time of England, obviously, um, as as we all know. But um, yeah, it's great to to see him doing what what he what he does and what he's comfortable with doing. You know, with Palace and just hopefully that he accomplishes uh, survival with us this season. But um, not not in the current regime, as far as I'm aware. Um, but under Pardew, there was a few. Um, you sound it probably sounds surprised, but Alan Pardew seems to be the character where um, anybody in the dressing room that's deemed or or, or or was kind of bigger than him ego wise uh, seemed to be surplus to requirements, and and the mm. big one was Mile Jednak uh, yeah. being moved on to Aston Villa, which was at the time a, a really sore loss for us. Because, Wasn't he your captain up until the moment he left? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, that's that's the most recent one I can think of, and I think Alan Pardew is that kind of character in that um, he will he will kind of do that, move people uh, out of the club or, or out of the first team at least um, if he's he's deemed to be more influential in the dressing room than he is himself. And it was yeah, I, I mean a lot of fans. I mean I, I, I think he's probably passed it this season in terms of being a Premier League player, but he might. He, he could come back next season with Villa and, and, and prove the point that he, he's really not. But you know, he was a, he was a great player for us um, in all those years he was with us, and it was a real wrench to see him leave Palace because he was that hard man in midfield. Um, he wasn't the best passer of the ball, but he was that player who wore his heart on his sleeve in the middle, and he really gave us an identity and somebody in in the pitch and, and kind of led with it for, you know, for example, really. Um, and it was a real, you know, we missed that character in, in, in our team under Pardew and obviously the rest is history, uh, isn't it, really, after after Pardew's second and, and the decline kind of continued um, after that happened. And I, I guess once you lose a Dresham, you know, in that way, then, you know, there's only one way it's going to go. But, um, but yeah, that, I, I mean, from that perspective, I think that's the most recent one that we've had. Um, but certainly I'm not aware of any that, um, that are kind of, in that mindset at Palace, I think that you know the way things are on the training ground and uh, in and around the club are very positive. Even though our position is a bit precarious this season, and I think Hodges' demeanour and, and the way that he just carries himself is, you know, trying to keep everybody you know in, in the correct mindset and and in that way. And you know, West Brom fans and the Fulham fans still love Roy Hodgson, so I can't imagine too many. I'm, I'm sure there probably is players that have fallen out of him for whatever reason, but. Um, I, I'm not aware of any, uh, you know, with us this season. Hmm. Uh, Richard, the obvious choice from the outside looking in is Yaya Torre, who seems to be having a uh, love-hate relationship with uh, Guardiola since he arrived in Manchester. Uh, is is that where you're going with this, or is there somebody else that might have had a tenuous relationship with him or any of your previous managers? Um, it's interesting that you say that it's the obvious choice because he didn't even cross my mind, um, huh. which... I genuinely, uh, I occasionally see his name in stories about City and think, oh yeah, that guy still plays for us. (laughs) Because he's so far out of favour that I don't think of him as as somebody who could play for us. Um, He did play against Basel and he's had the odd few minutes. Um, I I can't work out what's going on there because it's, it's easy to think he has a fractious relationship with Guardiola, but he signed a new contract in the summer. He was due to leave. So if it was that bad, or if Guardiola didn't sort of trust him or want him around, why would he have given him a new contract? He was mm. he was good last year when he came in. The issue from Guardiola's point of view seemed to be 
uh, more with his agent rather than it was with Yaya himself. Yaya apologised on behalf of his agent and then played a, a really big role for us last season. He was really good. But whenever Guardiola's asked about it this year, will Yaya play or will he have a role in the running? His answer consistently is, that depends on Yaya. And nobody seems to know quite what it means, whether it's a fitness thing or or what's gone on there. So I don't know. Um, Pep never rules out in playing, but he's just very... Um, he's never very straight with what's going on. Uh, the one that springs to mind for me for manager fallouts is um, one of the greatest player manager fallouts of the Premier League era, I think, with Tevez going on his golfing strike for six months uh, in, in what would, and then coming back for the title running and playing quite a big role in that in 2012. Um, but he didn't actually end up leaving until Pellegrini took over and then Tevez was gone within days to Juventus. But his, his fallout with Mancini was was pretty epic. And at the time, I think every City fan was on Mancini's side because Tevez had refused to come on uh, in Munich uh, when uh, when Mancini had instructed him to. But actually, as, as the years have passed and sort of coaches and, and other players have lifted the lid on what it was like under Mancini, uh, it seems that it might have been genuinely just a simple misunderstanding where... Mancini had actually, he'd asked him to come on, but Tevez had misunderstood and thought he was being asked to warm up when he'd been warming up for ages anyway. Um, and it was just a misunderstanding where Mancini, uh, not uncharacteristically, sort of blew his top at it a bit. And so that was a an odd fallout and a real shame because Tevez was a, a great player for us. Uh, but he got six months of getting seriously unfit to play football and, and playing golf and then came back, scored a hat-trick against Norwich and celebrated by by miming a golf swing. Uh, so at least he could um, arguably poke fun at it or um, to be more cynical about it, uh, just sort of highlight that he, I don't know, guess didn't really care or have any remorse for it. Uh, and the other one, under Guardiola, uh, obviously there is, I guess, a difference in his uh, take on how things would go under Joe Hart and how Joe Hart thought things should go. Obviously, there was only ever going to be one winner there, but Guardiola unequivocally been proven right in his mm. um, in his in Joe Hart out of the club uh, because he's he could not do what Edison does for us. The problem was that the first replacement obviously wasn't good enough in Claudio Bravo, but um, yeah, Joe Hart sort of made reference to there being a situation between him and Guardiola, but. I think it was, was it the was situation that Guardiola wanted a better goalkeeper. Exactly. I mean, it it wasn't even on on shot stopping ability, which obviously Joe Hart has declined significantly in that area. Anyway, but still might be better than Claudio Bravo. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he he could not play the game that Edison plays, and Edison is one of the key factors behind City's improvement this season. The the way he plays with his feet, we've we've essentially got a playmaker in net. So and he's he's pretty good at shot stopping too. So uh, that's the, the the only one that really springs to mind for me under the Guardiola regime. Uh, and there was only ever going to be one winner, and City are much better for it. Yeah. Um, quickly uh, for Tottenham, I'll give you a hint. We paid thirty million for him last year. Everybody was like, "Why on earth would you do that?" And he still gets minutes for us. Um, it is of course uh, Musa Sissoko, who, to be fair, has been. Decent at times this season. Actually had a fantastic match against Real Madrid um, away. That first match where he somehow played as both our central midfielder and right winger. And did really well at both. Um, managed to pin Marcelo back for a significant amount of that match. 
um, it, it was the first time where we were like, oh, that's Francis Soko. Oh, that that's lovely. More of that, please. Um, and uh, anyway, there have been some really interesting quotes about Sissoko lately um, from Laurent Blanc talking about why he's so favored in France. They did a poll recently asking if Musa Sissoko should be in the French squad. And it was over 60% of responders thought he should be in the France side, despite the fact he rarely starts for us uh, in meaningful matches. Um, <laughs> that Real Madrid match I just referenced kind of being the outlier. Um, but Laurent Blanc... Uh, went on record and talked about some of the things that makes Sissoko such a worthwhile addition to the squad, which is one, he causes no issues in the squad and is actually generally loved by the other players in the squad. Uh, two, that he actually trains hard, which may be surprising to people that see him play football, but apparently on the training pitch, um, he's all over the place. Um, third, that because of his, his uh, physical profile of strength and speed, that opposing defenses, regardless of whether or not he's on form, still have to kind of shift his way. Um, just because otherwise he'll be in loads of space. What they should have realized by now is that he'll just waste it. But they can't just let him run free um, whenever he'd like. Um, and that he will never complain. And for Pochettino, accepting your role in the squad is so far above your actual ability. Um, it's why as soon as Bentaleb spoke up, he was out of the club. It's why Adebayor got kicked out of the club. Kapu got kicked out of the club. As soon as a player thinks that they're more important than either their role or the club... They are out. And it's not a process. It's the second it happens, you're out the door. Uh, even happened with Townsend, which was uh, very sad considering he'd come up through the academy and everything. Um, there were other situations like Mason where he just wanted minutes. Same with Chadley. Um, those weren't butting head ones. But <laughs> this is very much a thing that happens at Tottenham right now. And I think we're seeing it currently with Toby Alderweireld. Where while I don't think Pochettino is particularly involved in the negotiations... I think the fact that Alderweireld is asking to be paid significantly more than uh, Hugo Lloris and Harry Kane makes Pochettino thinks he's bigger than part of the side, um, than his part in the side, which is incredible considering he is the best center back at our club, arguably the best in the league. Um, and I just, sorry, not to go on a side thing. I know I said it'd be quick and now I'm not going to be. Um, but uh, both sides are right. Tottenham cannot go to Toby Alderweireld and pay him 180k when Kane and Hugo are on 110. That, that would unsettle so much heading into the new stadium, which is supposed to be the revenue generator going forward, but you can't do that right now. It'd be much better to let him go than to uh, unstabilize the re destable, than to unsettle the rest of the squad with their wage situations. Secondly, Toby Alderweireld definitely deserves 180000 a week. That is not an unrealistic thing to demand when you see um, Virgil van Dijk moving to Liverpool and immediately making almost double what you're currently making at Tottenham. There, there is not a bad guy in this situation. Tottenham can't pay as much as Toby wants, but to Toby does deserve the amount that he's asking for. And I, I think if this was a marriage, this would be deemed irreconcilable differences. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he left as well. But I do think that's part of the reason we're not seeing him as much. Also, also, when he first came back from injury, he looked awful against Rochdale. And so the people that were immediately demanding we put him in against Juventus, uh, maybe a little wide of the mark. In hindsight, having lost anyway, could we have done better if we had played him? Maybe. But um, if there's a current one, it might be Toby Alderweireld. But yes, this is very much a thing. And Sissoko does largely get menaced just because Pochettino likes him, as do a lot of his previous managers. All right, uh, there's obviously no match previews because we're heading into internationals. Uh, so we will just bid you all adieu. If you guys would like to tell folks where they could find you or any projects you're working on, now would be a good time.
Yeah, thanks for listening. It's good to be back on the podcast. Um, I'm Jay. I'm the editor of TheEaglesBeak.com, a Palace fan site, by fans, for fans. There's articles going up every day, even uh, throughout the international break. So uh, stay in touch with us and uh, lots of great content planned. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at TheEaglesBeak. And you can also tune into uh, a community radio sports show that I'm involved in. I'm, I'm producer and co-host of the Meridian Sports Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at the Meridian SS. Yeah, I'm on Twitter personally at Richard the Burns. Uh, I am a member of the Blue Moon podcast, which is released every Friday. Uh, is a uh, dedicated Manchester City podcast. Um, who are on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast, and I do uh, one article a week about Manchester City for Yahoo Sport UK. Um, and thank you very much for having me on, and thanks for listening. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. Uh, I write for Goal and recently uh, started writing for Omnisport as well. Also, uh, be sure to check out um, this channel the rest of the week. We'll also have a championship show. Uh, we're also going to have a show uh, with Joshi talking about these United topics tomorrow to get the United version of it. If you're a United fan that listened through all of this with uh, us just basically mocking you, um, well done. That's that's uh, very brave of you. Uh, but you will get to hear your side on tomorrow's show. Also, we're going to have um, FPL Chief on uh, tomorrow to talk a little bit about strategy for the rest of the season for fantasy things. So, uh, as always, just kind of stay tuned on this channel. We'll be sure to turn out uh, plenty of content for you guys. Uh, thanks so much, Richard and Jay, for joining us today. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.